Hi friends, I'm Molly, your host today, and thanks for joining our Relief from Darkness podcast, where we're having conversations with people who've walked out of various hard places in their lives and into freedom. Today, we'll be hearing from Hillary and her experiences on the other side of addiction. Hillary is the creative director at Faith Church in Oklahoma City. She loves Jesus, people, and coffee in that order. And she's a graduate of UCO with a bachelor's in strategic communications, and she's pursuing a master's in integrated marketing communications at Georgetown University Online. She's a heart for helping organizations tell their story well and connect their audience in a meaningful way. I'm Molly, and we're here today with our Relief from Darkness crew, continuing our conversations, exploring how we can truly be set free from many aspects of mental illnesses. And really, that's anything ranging from depression or trauma or nightmares and all the things in between. Because if we can change our brains, then you can change your life. So for this session, we're going to be hearing from Hillary and her experience with the ripple effects of addiction and how it's really impacted her personally having a brother that struggles with addiction. And then we'll also be having our very own brain geek, Dr. Lori Basie. Yes. And she will help us understand some of the basic neuroscience behind what's happening. So, and then we will also have a team member, Charlotte. Hi. And she's going to just help facilitate some of the questions and give some really good insights. So with that, Charlotte, can you go ahead and tell us what we're going to be talking about today? So we're, we're, calling this the ripple effects of addiction Um, because addiction really um, is a family disease and it affects the entire family. So sometimes having a a family member in addiction can lead to the loss of the relationship, which can even at some point feel like death. It can make it hard to trust the person or know what to share or what not to share in the relationship. So sometimes feelings of guilt, like part of the addiction is your fault or that you should have known or the red flag sooner, or things that family members deal with. Um, And with almost 21 million Americans having at least one addiction and only about 10% of them receiving treatment, this topic can feel like an overwhelming one to navigate. So that's why today we have Hillary with us to hear her personal experience with this um, and her brother. So with that being said, can you, Hillary, share a little bit about your experience with your brother? Yeah, for sure. So um, it all probably started, um, I would say, around 2014, which feels like a lifetime ago. Um, I can remember when my parents got a phone call for the first time from my brother's high school, and he um, had been caught with things that he shouldn't have been caught with. He um, had been caught with some different substances. Um And looking back, it's like you can see things where like there's uh, like footprints of things Mm -hmm. that that were happening that you don't necessarily recognize at the time. Um, And he was, you know, a freshman, a freshman in high school. And so, yeah, so going all the way back there, that's probably when things felt like they started to fall apart would be the best way to describe that. Um, you know, you kind of fast forward a few different years and, um, things had completely fallen apart. My brother and I, we didn't really have a relationship at the time. I really thought it was him just being a punk more than anything. Like he didn't, I felt like he didn't necessarily, um, 
have respect for things around him or for anyone around him. Um, it was really hard to watch him treat my parents the way that he was treating my parents, the way that he was treating me. Um, he would take things and um, stealing became pretty common um, around our house and things like that. And again, like it all very much felt like not that there was a problem, not that there was like an addiction problem by any stretch of the imagination. Like no one would have thought that. It just felt like he didn't care, um, which added to really the strain in our relationship. You know, I can remember coming home. I was in college and I lived on campus and I came home. My parents were out of town and my brother and I, we were actually going to go to dinner. He was probably like a junior, I would say, in high school. And we were going to go to dinner and I walked in the house and he was asleep. And so I was like, I kind of hit his foot, went to, and I was like headed to the bathroom in our home. And it's so funny. I can see it so clearly in my head walking through the door. And I was like, Hey, wake up, let's go to dinner. Uh, we had plans. We had made plans to really spend some intentional time together um, because things had been so strained for a while at that point. Um, and he kind of was like super groggy. He was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And I come out of the bathroom and he was still asleep and I like kind of like nudged him. I'm like, hey, bub, like wake up. Let's go to dinner. We've got plans. And he like is super groggy, just not coherent at all. And he opens his eyes and they're like bloodshot, super red. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was my breaking point. Yeah. After so many things, um, it was my breaking point. And I just looked at him and um, – I'm really not one to get crazy angry or things like that, or even to raise my voice. That's not really my MO. I get pretty quiet if I'm angry. Um, but I just remember looking at him and being like, are you high? Mm. And he was like, no. And I was like, what'd you take? What are, what did you do? What did you take? What are we doing right now? And he was like, I didn't take anything. And it like just escalated so quickly. Um, and to like the point, where I was like, I'm not going to stand for this anymore. Like, you're not going to treat me this way. You're not going to treat mom and dad this way. Like, how dare you act this way? Like, we had plans and we were going to spend time together. And you took that and you sabotaged it. And I was like, why don't – I was like, just what is going on? And he kept, like, falling asleep as I was talking. And I just started throwing things. And I'm like, no, you're not going to fall asleep while I'm talking <laughs> to you. And, like, I would throw, like, pillows at him from the couch and yeah. things like that. Um. And eventually he, like, you know, he went to bed at my parents' house and all that stuff. And um, I can remember, like, I just spent the entire night praying. Like, I laid hands, um, not to get, like, too spiritual or whatever, but, like, I laid hands on every doorframe, on every doorknob. Um, I told the enemy that he didn't get to have my brother um, and he didn't get to have my family. Um, and I just, like, wept and prayed and, like, wept some more. Um, and the next day I looked at him and I said, you're going to tell mom and dad. I said, and then I'm not going to be over for a while. I said, because we're not going to spend time together anymore. I said, if this is what you're going to keep choosing, I said, then I'm not going to be a part of it and I'm not going to have a front row seat to it. Right. I said, because you don't get, at that time, it very much felt like abuse. I was like, you don't get to keep emotionally abusing me. I was like, so I'm done. And I was until my parents got back and we had a big family meeting. We sat down and we, um, I made, like, I made my brother tell them, um, what he took and all of those things. Um, and I looked at my parents and I said, um, I love you. I was like, you're my best friends. I was like, and I'm going to spend time with you and we're going to hang out and we're, and that's going to keep going. I was like, but I'm not going to be at this house. I was like, and if he's here, I was like, I'm probably not going to be. I said, I'm not making you choose. I said, cause I can't ask you to choose that. 
And I said, but for me, where I'm at right now, like I can't do this anymore. And so I didn't. And like I didn't go on family vacations. Like I didn't, we didn't do things as a family for a long time. Um, And again, like looking back, it's like, okay, yeah, he was an addict, but we didn't know that then. Like we had, I had no idea. Like I thought he was being like a punk kid in high school that just wanted to party with his friends. Mm -hmm. Like that's where I thought that we were. And I mean, man, I could tell you story after story of, and it felt like heartbreak. Um, But honestly, something inside of me just really was done. And so it stopped being painful. It stopped being hard. And it was like, this is just what it is. So just like a disconnect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Definitely a disconnect and almost like a settling where it was like, okay, so if this is what it's going to be, then this is what it's going to be. And I'm not going to expect it to be anything else. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah. So like from there um, through college, it was just very much the same thing. He eventually graduated high school um, and it just kept spiraling. He would eventually like stop coming home to my parents' house and would just be gone for like, I can remember at one point he was gone. I can't remember if it was six or eight days. Um, my mom would know the exact days. Um, and he wouldn't answer his phone. He turned off his location services and no one knew where he was. Uh, he was, um, I think he was in Tulsa with friends at one point. Um, and we had no idea. And that became the norm, just not knowing where he was and like the anxiety and the fear and, um, and watching my parents where my mom, uh, was very like heartbroken and emotional. My dad was heartbroken in a different way, like where he was just like angry a lot in regards to all of those things happening. Um, and the breaking point, my parents, um, they lived in Edmond. Like I grew up in Edmond, Oklahoma, um, and, and had like a very typical childhood. Like we yeah. both did. It wasn't mm-hmm. anything crazy. We had, my parents are amazing, like really incredible, like Jesus loving parents. And they, in 2018, moved to Texas with my dad's job. And my brother moved with them at that point. And at that point, he had gotten in a lot of trouble, like legally and had made some decisions with his life that were just like, it very much felt like a movie. My life mm-hmm. felt like, a movie. And really I didn't invite a lot of people into it because I didn't want a lot of people to know what was going on. Um, but then it was so hard to explain like the depth of the pain that was happening. Cause you couldn't make someone else understand that unless they had experienced something similar is what it felt like. And I can remember looking, um, at my boyfriend and saying like, how is this my life? Like, how yeah. did we get here? Because it, it felt like a movie. Like, there's no way that all of this is happening. So this affected not only just your relationship with your brother, but this affected your other relationships as well. Yes, definitely. Yeah, for sure. It felt very, uh, very isolating. Yeah. Because, you know, like around friends or around like my life that wasn't attached to that, it was, it was like, okay, well, Hillary's fun. And she's like, bubbly and happy and upbeat and like super excited about everything, which is true. That's like who I am. But underneath that, there was like an undercurrent of just like deep, deep sadness all of the time Um, because such a core relationship was so broken. It really did feel like um, my family was just like beyond hope. 2018, they moved to Texas and they really like our hope was that like that would get my brother like away from the people he'd been around. He'd stop partying and he would kind of just like 
bring his life back on track because at this point he's an adult, like no one can make him do anything. Um, and no one could before, like that obviously didn't work. <laughs> and so yeah. like, no one could make him do anything that he didn't want to do. Um, and yeah. And so then I can remember the summer of 2019, um, I really felt like I'd never really prayed for my family because when you pray for something, you're hoping for it. And I told the Lord, like, that's just not an area I'm willing to be disappointed in again. I'm not going to let him hurt me again. And that's what it felt. It felt like there were so many walls surrounding that. Um, and so I told the Lord, I was like, I'm not praying for that. And really felt like he told me to pray specifically for healing in my family and not like partial healing, but complete healing. Yeah. Uh, and I told him, no, I said, I'm not going to be disappointed there again. And uh, I just couldn't shake it. You know, and the Lord won't let you not do something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's where I was kind of at. And I can remember sitting at like Hefner and journaling and I just laid it all out to the Lord. And I said, okay, like here I am, like I'm showing up and I'm going to pray for it. I'm going to pray for total healing because that's the kind of God you are. And I've seen you be that God, but I don't know how to hope for that kind of God right now. And I don't know how to hope for that kind of healing right now. Um, and I said, so you're going to have to do something. And I don't even have the words to pray for it. But gosh, I'm so thankful for a God that doesn't always need my words, but right. he knows my heart. Yeah. So I just started praying really hard for my family that there would be like a complete healing. And uh, in August, my brother called me of 2019, August of 2019. He said, and normally I would ignore his calls because he was always asking for something or like asking for money or asking me to talk to mom and dad, things like that. I was like, I just never felt like dealing with it. So I would just like ignore his calls. Um, And so I picked up the phone that time for whatever reason. He was like, hey, what are you doing? I was like, I don't even remember what I was doing. I was like, I'm just hanging out. Like, what's up? What do you want? And he's like, well, can I talk to you? And I was like, yeah, we're talking. What do you want? He said, well, I, um, I'm i going to go to rehab. And I was like, you're going to do – you're going to do what? Yeah. And he was like, I've been addicted to cocaine for a long time. Um, and he was like to different drugs, but specifically cocaine for a long time. He was like, would you want to get coffee and talk about it? And I said, yeah, yeah, we can get coffee and we can talk about it. And we sat and talked for three hours. And it's the first time we had talked – like that in over half of a decade. So in over mm-hmm. five years, wow. you know, we were, it's so crazy. Cause like we were best friends growing up cause we're really close in age. He's like 15 months younger than I am. Mm-hmm. And so pretty close in age. And when things started falling apart, it was just like a severing on my part where I was like, okay, well you don't get to hurt me anymore. And so to sit and talk with him and he just like shared his heart with me and shared so many of his experiences um, that again, felt like a movie. It's like, this can't be real life right now. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so he told me, he's like, I'm going to go to rehab and I'm going to get better. He's like, cause I'm not going to keep choosing this and I want different and I want different for our family and I want to be someone that you can trust again. And so he did. So on September 1st, he checked into rehab, um, in South Texas, he was there for, um, a little over 30 days and it was a very intensive program cut off from the whole world. And we would go down and we would have family days and we would do things like that. Um, and when I tell you like on the other side of it, even going to see him like halfway through and he would call me, they take your phone away. So he didn't have a lot of numbers memorized, but mine was one that he had memorized like me and my parents. And so he would call, he called me almost every day Yeah. and we would talk if I could talk, we wouldn't, if I couldn't like all those things. Um, but when I tell you like he was a different person mm. and it's like the brother that I always knew. Yeah. 
but that somewhere had like gotten so lost and so broken. Um, and there's a scripture in the Old Testament that talks about how the Lord restores everything that the locusts have eaten. Mm-hmm. I didn't even realize locusts had eaten my family. And every time I come back to it at this point in my life, like the Lord is so good and he's so faithful to restore every single thing that we think is dead and broken and gone and everything that we think is lost. Like he is a God who restores every single piece of it. And it's so crazy to see that because it's like you can hope for that for other people, right? but hoping for that for yourself or for your family. Like we went on a family vacation together for the first time this year in a very, very long time. And it was fun Mm -hmm. and it was good. And I was so nervous and so anxious about it because on this side of it, there are still different side effects of addiction. And um, one of the things that, you know, we learned inside of this um, family days is like whenever you start the addiction, you almost freeze there emotionally and mentally. And so when it started for him, he was um, 15 or 16 or 14 or 15. So he's now, um, he's now 23 and he's learning how to process emotions that he should have learned how to process as a teenager. And so there's things like that that are still like a learning curve for us. And even like learning like as someone who, again, like, like I love my brother and it's so crazy because I never thought that I would say that again. And it's so cool to be able to see him being like who he was made to be. And not like what other people wanted him to be or what he felt like he needed to do to like find friends or fit in. But he's being like who he was made to be. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Um, thank you for sharing all of that. And so, Dr. Lori, can you give us the brain dump with the CPR from a sibling perspective or a family member perspective of addiction. Absolutely. And what a beautiful story and a beautiful testimony. And if we look at just the sheer statistics of people are suffering, whether it be from addiction or whatever it is, that it's going to impact all of us. That there are going to be people that in our lives that we really care about and it's going to hurt because hurting people hurt people. And so we need to understand then how do we navigate as we connect and how do we understand the brain with psychoeducation and then what routines do we put into place to keep ourselves safe and the people that we care about safe. And so I love as Hillary wove in and out of the story, there are really three connections that we need to hit just quickly. And the first is our connection with God. And he never causes bad things. And he's always with us. And even when we pray, he's not a genie that just sends back down the answer to whatever we were praying for. It's a process. And there are free wills that are involved. And he's the way maker with the song that I'm thinking about, that he'll make a way and he does things, but it's not in our timing. And even when it doesn't seem like he's working, or we don't feel like he's working, he's always doing something. And so as we heard in Hillary's story, it was beautiful how she connected with him. And when she didn't know what to do, she'd go around and she'd pray and and pray over, over the environment or, and then the, the day of surrender where she surrendered her brother to Jesus. She didn't know how to pray. Nobody understood what she was going through, but the cross on the cross, Jesus experienced it all. 
And he's the only one that knows exactly. And for us to receive healing, we need someone else to be a witness to exactly what we're going through. And Jesus was. And so even though she didn't have words for it, or she didn't even didn't even know what to to do or what to say, she connected with him. And so I want to encourage us all to connect with Jesus on the level of not I'm on earth and I'm in desperation and Jesus, don't you see all the things that are happening and Jesus, can you just not do something about it? But then connect with Jesus on the level that he knows exactly that he died for our sins, that he hung on the cross for what her brother was experiencing and what her brother needed and what she was going through, not just her brother, but also for her. And he knew exactly what she needed and what she was going through. And so in the midst of that, we can cry out to him, the one who can bear witness to us and the other person. And then we can pray seated next to Jesus, where all power and authority has been given to him from heaven to earth, which is totally different than desperation. And then we have to be connected to ourselves. So it's really important that we express what's going on. This hurts and there's a lot of pain and we need others to walk alongside with us. And then finally, the connection with our loved one or the person who's in our life that's causing all of this pain that, that we need to try to connect with them, but then we need to set healthy parameters in place so that we can safely be in the midst with them. And what I love to do as we think about other people who are hurting, it's beautiful then to try to partner with heaven and what does heaven see and call out destiny and call out even if it's not the thing that's actually manifesting itself at the present time. But that's not original design. That's not who God's created him to be. And then in the middle of all of that, it's really, really beautiful. It's a beautiful process when then we can connect on some level and have have compassion. And so if we think about it's It's not the what, if we look at the, what they're doing, they're causing pain, they're choosing, but what about if we would switch it and ask why? And so in the midst of all of that, they had no idea, but he was actually using substances. And so the, what makes us mad, but the why actually breaks our heart. And so then as we connect, then we can understand the psychoeducation. And so as, as she mentioned, it's, it's an addiction and they're in desperate need of whatever that addictive substance is more so than even the food that they would eat or the air that they would breathe. And so we try to make it personal, but once we understand the psychoeducation and how the brain is wired in the addictive process, it's not personal that there's literally a change in the brain. There's, there's really good imagery at brain scans of people who are addicted. It literally changes your brain. Lori, that's so good. I'm so, yeah, that's so good. So like, Uh, when we would do, we would have to do like family counseling Mm -hmm. at the rehab centers and go and do uh, family days is what they called them. And you literally spent all day learning about addiction and what it does. And all of the counselors at the specific rehab facility, they're all recovering addicts. And so they've all been sober for 20 plus years. And now they've got counseling degrees, they've got licenses to now help people Mm -hmm. on the other, get on the other side of addiction. And, you know, one of the things like you always hear is that addiction's a disease. And honestly, where I was at, as you were talking, it reminded me that like, I never believed that to be true. Like it honestly felt like a lie or an excuse or Mm -hmm. almost like a cop out for someone's decisions. 
and where like sickness is a disease. Like this didn't feel like a sickness, you know, at the, at this family day we had, they explained to us like what constitutes a disease. It's when there's a physiological change in the body Hmm. and addiction takes your midbrain Mm -hmm. and which controls what you believe you need to survive and um, please correct me if I'm wrong. It's good. Um, it's like hunger, thirst, and then sex are like the three things that are like on that list of survival that are, are basic needs. And it takes what addiction does. And not everyone who does something is an addict is what we learned. But when you do reach that level of addiction that you are now an addict, mm-hmm. it takes that substance of choice and it puts it in that number one spot. Hmm. And so the addict genuinely believes that without it and their body's responding yeah that they're gonna die and that's what and they broke it down for us and like that's what withdrawals are Mm -hmm. it's their body telling them that if you don't give me this i'm gonna die and so you need to help me survive and that's where addiction becomes a disease and so as you were talking like i can remember when it clicked for me in that Mm -hmm. room that he he had a disease and every part of my heart, and I can't say ev- every because we've definitely been in counseling. I've been in counseling since then to really acknowledge the pain and the grief because there is so much pain and grief that at one point I just wanted to ignore and act like it wasn't there because mm-hmm. at the time it felt easier to ignore it and to act like what was happening wasn't actually happening. But whenever it hit me that he was someone experiencing a disease and that addiction is a disease, all of a sudden I had so much more grace for where he had been, but where I knew he could go. Because honestly, I was still very hurt by the person. Cause, and I would tell people like, like Dr. Lori, if you were an addict, I could love you mm-hmm. because I wasn't personally affected by the decisions that you made. Mm-hmm. And they didn't personally hurt me. And so it would be so much easier to love someone. And I have that didn't actually hurt me. Um, and so for this, it took a place in my heart that had become so hard. Uh toward my brother and toward our family dynamic and it softened it like only jesus can do and honestly like had that been explained to me at another point in my life i don't know if i would have accepted it Uh or counted it as true or fact but where i was there because that's how good god is is he brings you to a place and he does it right on time right where you can understand it and where it will actually make a difference in your heart um and so I can remember, like me and my brother, we had a conversation after that. And I just looked at him and I was I was crying, was super emotional. And I was like, you're an addict, like you have a disease. And he was like, no, I'm not going to use that as an excuse. And I was like, no, but it's true. And he was, and he looked at me, he was like, okay, yeah, yeah, it's true. He's like, but I want you to know that I'm going to prove to you that you can trust me again mm. and that we're going to get there again, Hillary. And I just lost it. Wow. Because words that I never thought could be said mm-hmm. yeah. were said. Oh, that's beautiful. So the psychoeducation makes a huge difference. So we understand what's going on. And again, not as an excuse, but then we can start to order the routine, which really has to happen. So then how can I be powerful and how can I then allow high levels of respect and responsibility when people come into my circle? And so part of our routine, if it's somebody that we love and that we're invested in, that's making really poor choices, part of our routine is going to have to be grace and forgiveness. And that's just all there is to it. And then setting up a routine 
where I can remain safe and they can remain safe. And so I love the the analogy of then how close will I let somebody into into me? And but the problem is is that if I put up parameters, if I put up roadblocks or if I put up gates all around me and my heart, then I'll keep myself safe, but then I've also imprisoned myself. Yeah. And so how could I be okay and how can I thrive? And really, truly love knowing that I've got to do my part, they've got to do their part, and God's got to do his part. And so how can I do that knowing that somebody has behaviors that really look like great white sharks or piranhas? And so there's a way to manage that, and there's a way to do that and partner with Jesus and establish routines. And it sounds like, as you've heard throughout Hillary's stories and the things that she's talked about, about what she would do and what she wouldn't do and where she would give her brother access and not. And then how she talked to him almost every day when he was in rehab. And so that, that thing is, is not just set, but it's fluid based on, and, and again, we don't want to partner with the enemy that this person can never be trusted. We don't want to make intervals, but we want to establish a routine where we're assessing what levels of responsibility and access to our heart can they be given? And how do we create a safe environment where they can be loved? Because truly we need to love them, not based on their behaviors, but who they are as we partner with heaven. Yeah, that is beautiful. That is a great description. So with that, Hillary, if you could say just one thing to someone who's listening who might have a sibling or another family member who's dealing with these very things, if you could just give one takeaway, what would that be? Man, one takeaway. I could give like 75 takeaways, honestly, <laughs> like one. Um, man, pray. I think mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. is the biggest thing. And it almost sounds so simple and so trivial. Um but that was the game changer was like actual prayer and not just like, okay, God do whatever you want to do, but like intentional, like intimate prayer yeah. with the Lord over my family. Um, because I genuinely believe that like, had it not been for that, like obviously God can do whatever he wants to do. And he loves my brother more, so much more than I love my brother. But I don't believe that like I would have been as healed as someone who loves someone with addiction that I would have experienced like the healing and the transformation that I've experienced on the other side of this had it not been for that prayer. So whether that prayer was for my family or more for me, I don't know. And I don't know if I will ever know (laughs) this side of heaven, but I've got a really good feeling um, that I would not be where I was at or where I am at had it not been for prayer. Because I know that the Lord loves my brother enough to have like arrested his heart like he did. Um, but I got to be a part of it. Yeah. And I'm so thankful that I got to be a part of it in a way that I never expected and that I never thought could have happened. Um, and so that's my number one thing. And that's what yeah, I would tell anyone is like pray yeah, and pray real prayers about it. Yeah. Dr. Lori, if you could give one takeaway, what would it be? I think I'm going to piggyback on what Hillary has just said. And And thinking about all of that, God's got his part, we have our part, and they have their part. And so in the midst of all of that, if we can't do anything in the natural, and it seems like things aren't happening happening in the natural, 
then could we do our work in the spiritual? And could we come to a point of peace and love and joy because of that's who resides inside of us? A living Christ lives inside of us. And in the midst of that, if he overshadows us with that, if we're doing our work in the spiritual realm, and then every time we have interaction, we're bringing that peace and love and joy because hatred can't drive out hatred. Chaos can't drive out chaos, addiction and fear has to have God's perfect love. And so could we actually then bring love, joy, and peace as we do our work in the spiritual realm and set healthy parameters in routine? Yeah. And one thing that I noticed is in your struggle with prayer, when you were praying from expectation, that you were scared to give him your expectation and to really hope in that expectation and the way that he would do it or to just just because your heart was for 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 it to look like every other family would look who hadn't had to go through that. But once you surrendered and you prayed from surrender Mm -hmm. in just pure trust, like you could say now, I don't even know if it was for me, if it was for them. I don't, you know, (laughs) like it was just, I didn't know what I was even, I just was praying intentionally based on probably how this Holy Spirit was prompting you. And that prayer from trust instead of from expectation changes the whole dynamic Changed of our relationship and our connection with wow. God. Yeah. And so you loved really well too. And I'm curious about just, you know, because it, it affected your relationship with your brother. It affected your parents' relationship with your brother, but it also affected your relationship with your parents. I mean, if you're yeah. thinking about five years of not participating in family vacations or yeah. family dynamics, there was probably a whole lot of grief yes. in the, in the, in the, in the way that your parents were handling him and the way that you were led to handle him and your comfort level with that based on what was safe for you. And so this is just a beautiful example of loving well that you were also praying for. You you were talking about the full restoration of your family. And I'm sure there was a burden in there as well for just the, the, the wholeness of, of connection. And so Um, for you, you had to set a boundary, but loving well was, was really contending with heaven, interceding with Jesus from the place of the Holy spirit and surrender and not within your own expectations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a beautiful way to put it. It's like, man, contending with heaven. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, Jesus is interceding. The Holy spirit's Mm -hmm. interceding. We're we're groaning like, and that groaning, you're walking around with grief and you're groaning and you're trying to be happy Hillary with your friends, but there's a groan, you know? And so to really partner with heaven, then that groan isn't as loud when you're with people. You can be happy, Hillary, you know, because, you know, the spirit is groaning with you in, in, in your prayer. And it removes the weight of it. I would say where, Mm -hmm. um, you know, at the beginning, we talked a little bit of like the weight of what addiction can feel for those who love people who are addicts, which I would say, like, I don't know if I ever felt like the grief or the burden of like, oh, this is my fault. Or like, I could have done something because I was, so, I removed myself so far from it that I was like, this is not my responsibility. <laughs> this is you, buddy. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the weight of the grief of like what has happened to my family, and um, you know, and you think about things that are like five, ten years down the road at the time where it's like, what is my wedding day gonna look like? Like, what is like, who are my children? Like, how are they ever gonna know their uncle or? I mean, one of the things, this is pretty hard, but like one of the things they told us um, at the rehab center, my mom looked at one of the counselors and she said, I know, I guess he just had to hit rock bottom. And the counselor looked at him or looked at her and said, this isn't rock bottom. Rock bottom is finding him not alive um, in an alley somewhere. Like that would be rock bottom. 
Um, and it was such a sobering moment where mm-hmm. it was like, will my kids get to know their uncle and will they get to know the version of him that I have known that is fun and loving and would do anything for anyone and would give like the shirt off of his back to help someone. And I've seen him do that. Like I've seen him. like, he's so incredible. I'm like, would my children ever be able to know that? Um, and today, like I get to say like, yes, there is such a deep hope that they will. And it's almost been a restoration of hope and what it means to hope. Um, because in that, when, when I stopped faking it and stopped acting like everything was really great and stopped with the Lord, really not even necessarily with anyone, because it's such an intimate thing that like not a lot of people will understand. And it's hard to talk about addiction with people who haven't necessarily experienced it or don't know the weight of what it is to love someone that can't always control what they do. Um, but when I stopped faking it with the Lord, when I stopped acting like I just didn't care, right? that I actually cared so much that it was breaking everything inside of me mm-hmm. for so long, um, that's when the weight got so much mm-hmm. easier. Because you know, I can look at someone all day long and tell them, like, Jesus wants to carry that for you. Will you just let him? But, man, letting him carry, like, that weight, because mm-hmm. that was everything at the time. Like, my family was everything. Um, and he carried it so much better than I ever could have. Yeah, that is beautiful. So, basically, I mean, out of all of this, I think that's probably my favorite part is to hear – the restoration of family mm-hmm. and the, the restoration of hope. When you said that, I was like, that is good because it gives us this permission to dream again about what yes. should be and what could be for our own lives and for our most intimate relationships with people that we really care about and that we really love. Yeah. And so what would it look like if we did, instead of backing away or taking on all the shame and the guilt and the things that were said in the beginning of this episode, of that hardship and just saying, Jesus, here's the burden of it. I trust that you're going to restore my family. I trust that you can heal things. I trust that not only can you, but you want to, and not only do you want to, but you will. Yes. And I think having that kind of shift in mentality, I mean, that's where, that's where he can, I mean, he can move in that and he can do, like you said, he can do anything, but to be able to partner with him and what he's doing, like the things, everyone wins. It yeah. sets this family environment that is in favor of health and a family environment that's in favor of wholeness and intimacy. And it's beautiful. So thank you, Hillary, so much for sharing and for being vulnerable. And thank you, Dr. Lori and Charlotte, for being with us. It's been real. So remember, um, as we go through this and the things that we learn here is really things to help us change how we live our daily lives. And we do that by changing our brains because if we can change our brains, then you change your life. So with that, thanks guys for listening. And until next time. Thank you guys so much for listening to our Relief from Darkness podcast. If you would like more information or looking for more resources to help overcome the topics we've discussed here, 
please visit the No Boundaries International website at www.nbint.org, where we have a free e-course titled Journey of Restoration. And be sure to please leave us any comments or reviews as this will help get our content out to more listeners. We're praying for you guys and we will see you next time.